Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hey, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Eric Larson, president of the advisory board. Eric is a leading expert on healthcare market forces and industry transformation, and he served as a strategic advisor to CEOs leading the top 100 largest healthcare systems nationally. In fact, his relationships extend internationally as well. He advises CEOs around the globe. Furthermore, in his role as president, he oversees experts who study the future of healthcare. So thanks so much for being with us today, Eric. Rishi, it's a pleasure. Big fan of the podcast and just a privilege to be with you today. So let's start out with just how are you doing with with all that's going on in the world? How are you and your family? Yeah, so thank you for asking that. I got to say, I have these moments of like, deep cognitive dissonance. Because on the one hand, I'm just super grateful. Like I traveled incessantly pre-pandemic as so many of uh, your listeners did. And to have this like moment of just like total suspension of, of mobility and to be home, having three successive dinners with my family was a rarity. Having like 10 months of successive dinners is just like this amazing providence and it's a gift. And the cognitive dissonance sets in. I just look at all the devastation around not just our industry, but societally and globally. And you just, you know, I feel candidly, Rishi, just, I don't know, a little bit of survivor's guilt in a way. But short answer is doing really well and just impatient for this wreckage to stop. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point around survivor's guilt because a lot of folks have had, uh, not just domestically, but if you go beyond our borders, I mean, the wreckage has been, you know, even worse in many, many places. So I appreciate you. Uh, mentioning that. I'm curious about your personal story. So how did you get started in healthcare and kind of walking this very interesting path? Yeah, the dominant sensation I have when I think about my career is like gratitude. And I just feel super lucky to be in this position, in this really privileged position to be able to advise the industry and championing the industry. And and we'll get into kind of my current role, but it's a pretty panoramic one, Rishi. I focus on a lot of the different parts of the ecosystem. But, you know, like so many fun retrospectives on a career, mine got started by pure happenstance. So I won't go into too much detail, but uh, I went to Georgetown here in Washington and I was super active in our debating society and would love public speaking, et cetera. And I went to work overseas in Tokyo. Uh, studied and worked in Tokyo. And, and then I got this call out of the blue from one of my old debating friends who said, hey, there's this super dynamic, high vitality company in Washington called the Advisory Board Company, and they're looking for speakers. So people who will come and give presentations to boards and executive teams, and it's about healthcare economics and strategy and clinical advancements, all of which I knew Rishi zero about. So there's a deep irony, but uh, I came and, and uh, I'd call it an interview, but it was more an audition and got hired by a gentleman by the name of Ford Coles, uh, who subsequently became my best friend and best man at my wedding. But he said, look, I'm gonna hire you. You look a little young. I was 22. And I went through this like six months, like immersion in advisory board research and understand the economics of the industry and all the parts of the ecosystem, and then was launched. And, and then for the next few years, gave presentations to boards and executive teams and public presentation groups. And that's how I got started, Rishi. That's amazing. And and if you were to go back to that 22-year-old self, what, what advice, I'm just curious, would you give now that you're a little further along? That's a fascinating question. I think a lot about that. I mean, if I could time travel and counsel my former incarnation, what would I say? And I guess what I would say, Rishi, is I would counsel myself to be totally 
voracious in my learning. And it just so happened, I was so fortunate to be part of the advisory board, which, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it, but it, it was really the preeminent kind of think tank in the healthcare space. And we had this like embarrassment of riches in terms of these deep repositories of expertise. And, you know, I was always a student, but it's interesting now, I'm, at, I'm 48, I've been at the company for 26 years, um, through all of its different sort of evolutions, including the sale to Optum, which we'll talk about. And it's not an exaggeration, Rishi, to say that I spend probably 25 hours of my week just absorbing and studying. And, you know, that's the beauty and the complexity and the absolute conundrum of our industry, which is it's, you know, it's 17.9% of the GDP. It is indescribably complex. And I'm a reasonably smart guy, but I am forever behind. <laughs> and so I guess I'd counsel my 22-year-old sense to start the 25 hours a week earlier. I, I figured that out in my 30s and 40s. And man, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, it just would have been good to start that discipline earlier. God, I, I, I feel exactly the same way. There's so many times I'm like, what was I doing when I was in my early 20s? <laughs> How was I spending my week? And why was I not learning more? I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm really curious about the advisory board. So maybe talk a little bit about that. And we can jump into Optum as well when that fits in. Sure, sure. Look, I love the advisory board. The advisory board has historically been a best practice research sort of student and then disseminator. I mean, for years and years, we would canvas the industry really expansively. We did tens of thousands of interviews per year to try and home in on what is the best practice. And then we would, with great intellectual rigor, deconstruct the best practice, you know, look for its foundational sort of ingredient parts, what makes it work, and then we teach it to the industry. And so, you know, of the 6,000 hospitals in the industry, um, 90% were members of the advisory board and then the large ambulatory groups and the biopharmaceutical companies, the med tech companies, the payers, and now the venture capital groups and PE groups. So we try to be at the epicenter of all of this sort of dynamic energy and to understand, you know, where are the innovations happening? And increasingly, Rishi, as you well know, you can't be insular. You can't just look even at 17.9% of the economy to figure out where the best practices are emerging. So increasingly our gaze kind of surveys the entire economy uh, and the globe to understand where are disruptions emerging and how do we understand them and harness them? So that's kind of the high level. You know, we were a very sort of disruptive innovator in the tech space, especially around business intelligence and helping health systems run more intelligently and ambulatory groups run more intelligently. Um, and we were a very large consulting firm. And I say the past tense because we're all of those things now, but um, we transacted in 2017 and were acquired by Optum, which in retrospect was just the best decision that the advisory board ever made. Because I'll, I'll share with you, you know, we had this wonderful position as a thought leader and we could opine and we would hopefully demystify what's happening in the industry. But at our high watermark, Rishi, we were an $800 million revenue company in a $4 trillion enormous part of the economy. And we could opine to a certain extent, but we really wanted to be more activated. And so we looked across the industry and looked at a lot of possible alliances and decided Optum was the best bet, and it's been super invigorating. I could talk about what we're doing, but that's a little bit on the advisory board. Yeah, I'd love to hear about what you're doing, and specifically how our learners and users of, of the podcast and of the platform would 
connect to that? Like, how does that touch their daily life? And in, in, even if it's indirect, what is that connection? Sure. So the advisory board's still a like a very voluminous publisher, speaker. Our, our insights are out there to our members. And so that's been a very robust business that hasn't decelerated at all. But now I think about it as, I mean, Optum, as so many of your listeners know, is this just wonderful, dynamic juggernaut of a company. And it touches so many parts of the ecosystem. And now I feel like we've got this great gift to be able to look across all the proficiencies and assets of Optum and then do translation and shuttle diplomacy, Rishi, if you will, to predominantly health systems and hospitals and ambulatory groups. Again, we serve payers, we serve biopharmaceutical, we serve vet tech, but that's kind of the bailiwick I think about. And I'll give you just a couple examples. So, you know, health systems are a $1.3 trillion sector, as you know, it's 6% of the GDP, it's enormous. And yet there's been so much horizontal consolidation the top 100 health systems collectively control $856 billion in revenue out of that $1.3 trillion sector. 84 men, 16 women, average age 62, average 10 year, 3.9 years. This is a knowable group. And it's actually really liberating to think about it as, gosh, here's 6% of the GDP that's really guided and propelled by the leadership of 100 individuals. Wow. And so- I spend disproportionately my day talking to those 100 individuals. And so on an average day, I'll talk to a half a dozen CEOs from health systems, and again, the broader parts of the ecosystem, to really share what we're seeing, what we're sort of triangulating in on in terms of insights and best practices. And given how interdigitated the whole healthcare economy is, you know, what's happening in venture capital, what's happening in healthcare digitization trends, you know, what's happening with the $1.5 trillion in dry powder that is ready to be deployed by private equity. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that, Rishi, and, and it's super fun. And on a personal level, I just, you know, these are CEOs, these top 100 CEOs I've worked with for all 26 years of my career. And it's been just so gratifying to see them advance through their progressive levels of responsibility and impact healthcare on a more and more profound level. And so that's just one active way that that we're engaged with the ecosystem. That's really interesting because the theme you hear if you turn on cable news is the fragmentation of the healthcare system in the US has been one of the issues with why we've had this crisis. You're telling me, well, wait a second, Rishi, there are 100 CEOs. I can show you my cell phone and I've got their names right here. I know them. I know their ages and maybe their kids, et cetera. I know them as humans and they control you know, a large fraction, you said 6% of, of American spending and productivity. So maybe it's not as fragmented as we're kind of led to believe. I'm just curious, like when you hear that messaging around fragmentation, what is your response? What, what do you think? Like, are we as fragmented as, as we're led to believe? Or is it a little bit less than that? And maybe there's more cohesion than, than meets the eye. It's a really nuanced question. I haven't heard that question quite framed that way. Let me think about that. So I do think that there is massive fragmentation and balkanization in the industry, as, as you and I would agree. Um, but I do believe that there's enough sort of critical mass in leadership, especially on the provider side, that 
you know, you think about, again, just going back to the health system side, it's 6,000 hospitals, which sounds totally atomized. If you're going to inflect the industry, are you going to have 6,000 separate conversations? I mean, and I think actually the aggregation of hospitals and health systems should lead toward a more centralized kind of set of suggestions and solutions. And so it's a really interesting paradox because on the one hand, you're right, especially viewed from the consumer lens, you know, the health system is so intimidatingly large and hard to navigate. And, you know, hopefully we'll get time to talk about all the dynamism in the venture space, but a lot of these digital forward companies, these digital native companies in healthcare are seeking to simplify and defragmentize. But I do believe it's a good place to start to say, look, if we can persuade 100 of these deeply mission-oriented leaders that there is a path forward toward lowering total cost of care in a consumer-centric way, that I actually view it as a, as a simplification. I can have 100 conversations. We collectively can have 100 conversations and really mobilize. And you can, you can phenotype, Rishi, the health system sector into the 21% that are for-profits, into the 24% that are, that are Catholic-based systems. And so you can, even, you can even aggregate them up into different phenotypes and have those kinds of dialogues. So that, that's really interesting. And I, I have never even thought about, you know, healthcare phenotypes. It's a really interesting um, play on what is typically thought of as something that is very innate or genetic at the individual level. And so I, I really like that idea. I'm going to probably carry that forward. Um, in terms of COVID, like what are some examples then are of like ways or roles that advisory board has kind of played into this crisis? Because I'm sure healthcare systems were looking at some sort of sense of leadership. And obviously, um, one place you could look for that would be like Dr. Fauci at the federal level and national level giving guidance, CDC. But you offer a different sort of leadership, you know, and so what what were you telling your members? And what were they doing in response to that advice? So we've been spending again, as I shared with you, um, I'm personally dialoguing with a lot of these folks every day. And the topics generally go to what are the secular and structural shifts? that the pandemic is gonna slingshot forward. And we're spending a lot of time trying to really dissect what's happening with site of care shift, top of license practice, home as an epicenter, omni-channel digital frictionless front door. You know, what's happening with all of the upheaval in the physician ranks? In fact, Rishi, I'll be bold and say, I think one of the most consequential shifts that the pandemic has accelerated is what's going to happen with independent practice. And I'll just give you a couple data points. I mean, there are 220,000 primary care doctors around the country. Collectively across 2020, they lost $15 billion in revenue. Now already pre-pandemic, about 50% of them were employed by hospitals and health systems, but a little bit less understood or appreciated is the demographics. 25% of these primary care doctors are over the age of 65. Blumenthal and Farjad Mostashari in the, in the uh, Commonwealth recently published a really thoughtful piece on just how devastating this has been for physicians themselves. And you've got just exhaustion and it's a dispirited kind of sense. I spent a lot of time thinking about what is going to happen now. Now you've got private equity getting very aggressive and aggregating up physician practices. You've got payers that have been very energetic purchasers of physician practices. And, you know, if we learned anything from the pandemic is that if you were exposed to predominantly a fee-for-service reimbursement in late March and early April, your volumes dematerialized. 
Now, if you were lucky enough to have capitation or per member per month reimbursement, you were a little bit inoculated from this. And so, you know, where we've tried to support the industry, Rishi, is in doing inquiries along these different categories and try in an unbiased, objective, nonpartisan way to really understand what is temporary and what is secular and structural. And those are just some of the broad kind of brushstrokes of the categories that we've been looking into. So maybe this would be a good time to segue into Optum and like talk to me about why that made sense and, and what the sort of ramifications are of, the, of that move. Yeah, there were a lot of ramifications. I mean, one is overnight, we became part of the family of, in my estimation, I always used to talk to CEOs about Optum as this incredibly dynamic, you know, juggernaut of a company. And suddenly we're, we're part of it. And it's just been beyond energizing. And I'll give you a couple examples. So the advisory board is singularly focused on best practice research and insight, and really operates almost in a very autonomous way, because the research is unbiased. The research is what it is. You know, I have a unique role in that um, not only am I president of the advisory board, but unique among all of my super talented colleagues at the advisory board, I spend a disproportionate share of my time at the optimum level. And with a couple enormously talented colleagues, Dr. Mitch Morris, Nick Howell, the three of us really look across all of the componentry and capabilities of Optum and think, how do we adapt these and make them hyper-relevant to hospitals and health systems? One of the things we've been thinking about, Rishi, is you know, the pandemic obviously started with a shock to the system, and it actually caused a liquidity crisis for a lot of hospitals and health systems. You know, the AHA estimated $320 billion was lost by health systems across 2020. Well, that liquidity crisis is going to, de- has degenerated into a solvency crisis for a lot of health systems. In fact, the pre-pandemic operating margin was around 2.5% for health systems. Now it is 0.03%. Now, with the CARES Act, it goes up a couple of points, but you got to be rigorous and think, gosh, as we exit, and God willing, let that exit happen fast, as we exit the pandemic, what is going to be the status of health systems going forward? And so we've been thinking a lot about how do you take this sort of like this innovation across Optum and do the shuttle diplomacy and make it hyper-relevant health systems? And the first example of that, Rishi, was a partnership that we announced a year and a half ago with John Muir Health in the Bay Area. Um, John Muir is this fantastic system. It's a little smaller than $2 billion. It's led by Cal Knight and Chris Pass. Great I used group. to work there, actually. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, so I, I know. Yeah, I used to work at John Muir for a number of years. But yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, we have a lot of passion for those guys. I've had the privilege of knowing Cal and Chris for a decade, and I just I have such um, esteem for them. Well, we were dialoguing with them a couple of years ago about, you know, how can we partner to professionalize and almost industrialize some of the non-clinical functions. So revenue cycle, IT, analytics, cybersecurity, supply chain, procurement, et cetera. Things that a lot of health systems are very proficient at, but if we're really being super introspective, Rishi, are we best in the industry? Are we best in the economy at those things? And I actually think that's gonna be, that's the kind of rigor in terms of the self-questioning we're gonna have to do going forward. And you know, the answer was, maybe Optum could ally with John Muir and really advance and take our R&D budget, which is considerable and multi-billion dollars, and and have John Muir partner with us to do that. And really, I would characterize it, Rishi, as how do you create a financial hydraulic to fund the real transformation 
and the movement from volume to value. And so it's a two-part kind of partnership. So we're focusing on the non-clinical things and really a deep alliance around that, but then it's the fun stuff. How do you reconceptualize primary care? I mean, how do you focus on managing care longitudinally, closing gaps in care, um, you know, predictive analytics, AI, ML, RPA to really understand next best step in a patient's care? How do you understand behavioral psychology so that you can actually stimulate agency among patients? I mean, it's super cool. So it's a decade long partnership creating this financial hydraulic to fund the conversion. Um, from volume to value. And I'll give you one other data point that is actually not about John Muir, but is more from the academic literature. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric right now about value-based care, but if you, if you use a more exacting definition, and for, for me, I use the definition of delegated risk or capitation, and it's actually a vanishingly small percentage of most health systems revenues. So in fact, the average health system, we talked about you know, the horizontal M&A activity, so top 100 have 856 billion in revenue. The average among those is less than 2% capitation. The academic literature suggests, would suggest, Rishi, that you need 23 to 29% full capitation to make the economics go around the block, to practice true population health and divert ambulatory sensitive emissions. And you know this stuff intuitively, but it's, it's actually interesting to look at the numbers. And the way I think about it, Rishi, is, What's the difference between 2% and 23 to 29% for an average health system with a sub 2% operating margin? It's bankruptcy. How are you gonna invest in the infrastructure and build out all those proficiencies? So the thing that animated me about the Optum affiliation was, gosh, I think advisory boards got a lot of original insights and counterintuitive perspectives, but Optum is similarly impassioned about these things and now, you know, how do you actually take all those things and put it at the disposal of a health system? So our next partnership was with Boulder Community. We're going to announce a couple in the next few months. And I'm just super passionate about that. It seems like a lot of these healthcare systems, their CEOs, they want to do the right thing. The academic literature spells out what the right thing is. And you've used a lot of analogies, so, which I love. So I'm going, to, I'm going to play with one here as well which is like you think about an energy state, you want to go to a lower energy state, you're at this energy state, but to get there, you need a catalyst. And that financial injection that you can offer could be that catalyst to say, look, we'll put in the upfront money to help you get to that 25, 29%. And then you'll see the rewards are just going to be kind of self-replenishing. And at that point, it just makes a lot of sense. But a lot of folks just can't get there because you got to go through this very painful bankruptcy <laughs> to, to get there. And so therefore, it doesn't happen. And it doesn't matter if we have necessarily the political will. I mean, I'm thinking more in, in the political world, like political will and other things like that. You need an actual mechanism. And that's what you guys are trying to provide. Is that is that fair? I love it. It's not just the mechanism, it's the enablement. So, you know, it's one thing to actually create a treasury so you can fund the conversion, but it's the other thing to actually have a lot of the technological prowess and R&D, et cetera, um, to actually enable the conversion. So Rishi, you characterized it exactly right. And to me, this is how you transform the industry. And we go back to those 100 individuals. And the dialogues we're having with those 100 folks are incredibly gratifying because we're all allied around the same thing. We know that if we do not address total cost of care from a private sector point of view, we may have a more draconian solution imposed on us. I feel great urgency around this. And I know those top 100 CEOs do too. And being able to think longitudinally across, gosh, what are all the capabilities that Optum has? I view that as a real 
accelerant to the shift. So it'll be interesting. I mean, what you're describing are, are almost like a little laboratory where you're working with group A, group B, kind of doing these little experiments. And then you publicize that experiment to the other 98 CEOs or 99 CEOs and say, hey, look, look what we did here. Um, this is a real world experiment. This is the data we're seeing. Do you want to try it as well? And that kind of helps to lower the risk or offer them cover to say they're going to do this bold new thing, but it's not just a pie in the sky idea. It's actually worked. Um, That's exactly right. That's awesome. I I realize, and I, this um, happens sometimes to me, I lost track of time, and I want to make ah. sure we give you enough time to offer and impart some advice. I mean, you're full of incredible wisdom, and you know this market incredibly well. What would you say to someone that is coming out and saying, like, hey, Eric has this dream job. I don't know how you get there, but how would someone just entering the clinical space, or even non-clinical space, maybe the business world or what have you, get their hands around something so beastly as the healthcare system? Yeah, Rishi, I... I think a lot about that and I'll close with where I started, which is just gratitude. I mean, I just feel so lucky to be able to support this industry and the way that I would counsel a person, you know, entering the space is, you know, just for them to be super introspective about what is it that they're passionate about? What are they gravitating to? Increasingly, there's this specialization. I mean, almost the pre-professionalizing that we see in academia right now. And, and that worries me. And I, I've got a 17-year-old son who's looking at colleges right now. And I, I, I can't believe I'm telling him this, but I'm like, do the humanities, do liberal arts, you know, don't pre-professionalize. And I do think you talked a little bit about that, that kind of paradox, which is this huge 17.9% part of the economy and yet, as we were dialoguing about, it's actually smaller than you think. I think the industry needs more people that look expansively across all the different domains. You know, how do you understand what's happening among incumbents and their own economics and their own challenges? And then all of these non-traditional disruptors, you know, be it coming from the venture groups or growth equity or private equity or these trillion-dollar market cap fintech companies, I guess I would encourage a young person aspiring, I would counsel him or her to, to take as broad a lens as they can initially and try and expose themselves to all of these different elements of it. You know, join a digital native VC backed healthcare company and then spend some time, if you can, you know, serving on the provider side. I do believe that there is fragmentation. And part of it is that we just talk past each other. There isn't any sort of common vocabulary. It's so complex and so intimidating that everybody naturally gravitates towards specialization. And so, yeah, I guess I'd close by just saying, you know, one of the most profound bits of counsel I ever got was from this pastor. I actually, I just happened to hear one of his sermons and he talked about like in times of volatility and upheaval, L has to be greater than or equal to C. Learning has to be greater than or equal to the rate of change. And so I always think the way you confront uncertainty is by just immersion into study, to really understand it and to suspend judgment and disbelief. And again, going back to what we talked about, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago, that's how I would have counseled my own 22-year-old self, which has just become a perpetual student with this wonderful embrace of beginner's mind. And, you know, it's what Jeff Bezos said, it's always day one, it's always day one. And so I guess those would be my counsels. L is greater than C and 
um, can you take as panoramic a view by getting experience in different sectors? I think that's a really important shuttle diplomacy role to be played. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, your pastor passed it on to you. You're passing it on to me. I'm, I'm hopefully going to um, be able to pass it on through this podcast to many other people as well. So learning is greater than change. That's that's fantastic. L is greater than C. I'll, I'll end on that. Uh, thank you so much for joining the show, Eric. That was phenomenal. Appreciate big privilege, a lot of fun, and, and thank you. Well, great. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.